Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 48 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 5, Episode 47 for Part 1 of this three-part case. The next instalment will be available in three days. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Stephen Griffiths was the man who ended Suzanne Blameyer's life. That was not something he could argue as he had been filmed on CCTV executing her with a crossbow. Suzanne's remains were later found in the River Air. Griffiths was also suspected of killing Susan Rushworth and Shelley Armitage. Their whereabouts were currently unknown.
after his arrest. Details of Stephen Griffiths' living arrangements and social media profiles were the subject of much scrutiny in the press. A black and white image widely circulated pictured Griffiths posing, with his then long hair combed back and his chin resting on a clenched fist. Another photo taken more recently showed Griffiths shirtless, staring straight into the camera. Just before he was taken into custody, the housing block where he lived was surrounded by armed police, who then would not let anyone in through the bright red doors of the sandstone building. When the residents of Homefield Court were finally allowed access to their homes, everyone had to be checked in and out, one by one. They were advised not to speak to the press. The apartment block was located on the city end of Thornton Road, near the edge of Bradford's red light district. That area runs parallel to Sunbridge Road, where Shelley Armitage was recorded by a CCTV camera shortly before she vanished. Furthermore, after visiting her family in Thornton, Susan Rushworth had told them she was heading into the city centre and travelled east on Thornton Road. Puzzlingly, however, she got off partway through the journey near her home on Oak Villas several miles away, and there were no witness sightings that placed her near Griffiths' flat. Stephen Griffiths had made few friends while living in Homefield Court. He either had a reputation of keeping himself to himself or someone you would want to steer clear of. He lived alone and had been renting his one-bedroom flat for the past 13 years. After scene of crime officers walked into the property, they were greeted by three doors. One to a living area which contained a kitchen. The next door went to Griffiths' bedroom and the third to a bathroom. The bathroom tiles had been removed, and it looked as though something had been burned in the bath. Griffiths' bed was covered with black sheets. In fact, every item of clothing both in and out of his wardrobe was either black or dark in appearance. The flat was full of shelves on which sat a vast collection of true crime books, magazines and videos. Reportedly, when he was not reading books or watching documentaries about killers, he enjoyed watching horror films. Few photos or pictures hung on the predominantly bare cream walls except for a map of Bradford. No images of family or friends, just several pictures of himself. Over a dozen black holdalls and bags were scattered throughout the property. He had left out a large amount of cleaning materials that included bleach and air freshener. In the living area sat a desk and a computer. On the sofa were two crossbows, reportedly named Skeleton and Jaguar. 
He had set up a website that featured pictures of those weapons along with a large number of further images, which included other crossbows, along with the faces of serial killers. Getting hold of a crossbow had been easy for Griffiths. Both then and now a buyer does not need a license to purchase one. They're not legally defined in the same way as guns or explosives. The buyer needs to be 18 or over. However, the weapon can only be fired on private land or licensed grounds. When asked about the sort of person Stephen Griffiths was, neighbours called him a loner and an oddball. A local shopkeeper said he was, quote, a bit weird. He dressed in what would be described as gothic clothing. Griffiths often slicked back his hair and wore a long black leather coat with big black boots, similar in appearance to the clothing worn by Keanu Reeves in the sci-fi action film The Matrix. When asked what he did by people who were curious, Griffiths dryly remarked he was doing a PhD in murder and Jack the Ripper. For the most part, he seemed isolated, in spite of the small group of friends he had made. By all accounts, he did not have a job and was financially dependent on state benefits or grants to aid in his studies. The mature student had graduated from Leeds University with a degree in psychology before continuing his studies at Bradford University an institution he had been attending for several years. The campus was only a short distance from his flat. The faculty at Bradford University had received no complaints regarding his behaviour. During his studies in criminology, he compared current policing methods with those utilised in the 19th century. His thesis on the history of homicide was titled Homicide in an Industrial City, Lethal Violence in Bradford, 1847 to 1899. The course he was studying, Applied Criminal Justice Studies, would see Griffiths carry out some practical work in either victim support, the court system, or for the local authority. He would have been taught about psychological profiling, criminal law, and forensic science. Some neighbours were uncomfortable in Stephen Griffiths' presence. Others considered him friendly, utterly unaware of the complaints against him. On occasion, Griffiths would become frustrated when he realised his advances in clearly platonic relationships with women, who also lived in Homefield Court, did not develop into romantic encounters. His behaviour was considered threatening by some residents, and the caretaker was provided with a panic alarm. There was genuine cause for concern given the complaints and a referral to the management company. Still, Griffiths' conduct never went so far as to warrant police intervention. 
A report was also filed by the employees of a local library after Griffiths had taken a keen interest in any books that mentioned dismemberment. However, in isolation, this did not mean anything other than he had an interest in the macabre. Authorities had been to his flat and confiscated a crossbow and some hunting knives. Although Griffiths' unsettling behaviour seemed to subside after this incident, and the police were not called again. Because of the round, black rim sunglasses Stephen Griffiths occasionally wore, patrons from a local pub nicknamed him Penfold. This was in reference to the cartoon Bespectacled Hamster and Assistant to Danger Mouse, the main character from the television series produced during the early 1980s. Griffiths had also been dubbed the Lizard Man by fellow residents of Homefield Court and locals throughout Bradford. He was repeatedly spotted walking the streets with his pet reptiles on a leash. Griffiths kept rodents in his flat. However, they were not pets. They were purchased for the sole purpose of feeding them to his lizards. Stephen Griffiths appeared to have a number of personalities he presented to the world. He spent a great deal of time on the internet and created a MySpace profile under the username Ven99. His age, according to the account, was 99. His location, Bradford. He had 96 friends, most of whom were female. In the biography section, through his alias Ven Pariah, Griffiths described himself as a, quote, misanthrope who brought hate into heaven. He often posted pictures of killers Fred and Rosemary West, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. Griffiths also briefly used a dating site called Soulmates, which was connected to and promoted on the website for the Guardian newspaper. He only ever made direct contact with one person. He had used a similar naming convention to his MySpace account. Under the username Ven1066, the profile was active for one month from the tail end of December 2008 into the start of the following year. He stopped logging into the account around April 2009. The profile of the then 38-year-old described how he was looking for a woman between 29 to 39, who was, quote, not afraid to let her hair down. Griffiths described his appearance, his personality, and how he spent his days. Physically, I take care of my body and face, especially the latter which refuses to look any older than a 25-year-old's. Maybe I have a Dorian Gray portrait hidden away. My occupation involves homicide research which demands a lot of self-discipline and emotional detachment. Hardly a laugh a minute work either. Hence it's important for me to relax and unwind at other times. 
although I'm an extremely tough, assertive individual. I'm not the overbearing type. The Sun newspaper would report on how Griffiths regularly wrote about the crimes of serial killers. He had posted hundreds of crime photos on his MySpace profile and belonged to such groups as Homicide Massacre. Based on the information he shared online, no doubt bolstered by his extensive book and film collection, it was clear he dedicated much of his time to consuming true crime in all its forms. He listened to a lot of punk and indie music. Griffiths's Amazon wish list, which remained publicly available after his arrest, also provided a glimpse into the type of films and books he planned on purchasing. A Razor Head by David Lynch, violent thriller Deliverance, several true crime documentary box sets, a book titled Goodbye Lizzie Borden, the story of the trial of America's most famous murderess, and Patterns of Vengeance, cross-cultural homicide in the North American fur trade. Stephen Griffiths also used the internet to journal his thoughts about existence. In one such post, he wrote, Humanity is not merely a biological condition. It is also a state of mind. On that basis, I am pseudo-human at best, a demon at worst. What's more, he liked to share biblical quotes. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides. The line came to prominence in popular culture through the film Pulp Fiction. The day before Suzanne Blamires was killed, Stephen Griffiths updated his MySpace page. He wrote, What will this pseudo-human do, one wonders? Poor Stephen pretended to be me but he was only the rapping. He knew towards the end that I supplied the inner core of iron, hatred bound tightly in flesh. At very long last, the time has come to act out. Griffiths claimed that Ven Pariah had finally emerged into the world. The reason why exactly Stephen Griffiths used this pseudonym has never been established, not least by him, although there is a great deal of speculation. It has been suggested by Professor David Wilson, an expert in the field of criminology. This is a shortened version of Stephen, combined with Pariah, a reference to Griffiths seeing himself as an outcast. Although several media outlets managed to take a glimpse into Griffiths's life through his online accounts and social media presence, his MySpace profile was quickly taken down by the West Yorkshire Police. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. 
every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowl & Branch Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Much like the murder of Suzanne Blaymeyers, Stephen Griffiths' arrest was also captured on the security cameras that monitored home field court. The arm response actually went into the building first, um, about near, say, six of them. They went upstairs to where he lives. Uh, they come back down, and then another couple of police officers went upstairs. Um, maybe ten minutes after that, they brought the guy in question down, cuffed. Glyn Tucker, a security guard who watched the events unfold over the flat CCTV cameras, as Griffiths was led out in handcuffs, did not consider the suspect a threat to anyone. Interviewed by a reporter for the Metro, Tucker said, Up until now I thought he was okay. He kept himself to himself and was a nice person. The security guard who also lived in Homefield Court, a converted mill built in 1850, could not ever recall seeing Griffiths doing anything sinister around the building. 
before armed police stormed the apartment block. Griffiths had been patiently waiting for them to knock at his door. In here, he told officers when they arrived. He was forced to the ground at gunpoint and arrested without incident. Griffiths reportedly said, I am Osama bin Laden. This is the end of the line for me. Not long after, forensic officers were pictured outside in the rain, holding umbrellas doing their best to document the scene as the heavens opened. At this time, Griffiths was being booked in to Halifax Police Station. Subsequent to the suspect being interviewed, the Crown Prosecution Service felt it was in the public interest to act swiftly. So almost immediately, they authorised the police to charge Stephen Griffiths with the murders of Susan Rushworth, Shelley Armitage and Suzanne Blamires. The announcement was made outside Trafalgar House Police Station in Bradford. The Crown Prosecution Service has been working closely with West Yorkshire Police. I have carefully considered all of the evidence provided to me arising from their investigation into the murders of Suzanne Blamires, Shelley Armitage and Susan Rushworth. I have decided that there is sufficient evidence to charge Stephen Griffiths with their murders. All eyes were on the investigation. Where Yorkshire police were not the only constabulary that had an interest in Griffiths. He was scheduled to appear at Bradford Magistrates Court as the prosecution was underway. When he faced a judge, dressed in jeans and a black shirt over a white T-shirt, Stephen Griffiths was watched intently by a dozen or so of the victim's relatives, some of whom were wiping tears away from their eyes. An individual in the public gallery was standing up as Griffiths was marched through the courtroom. They initially refused to take a seat before proceedings commenced. Griffiths slowly put his hands together as if he were praying. Unshaven, he appeared agitated as he stood before a Bradford district judge. Every person in the courtroom watched fixated, some craning their necks to get a good look. Through the glass-fronted dock, Griffiths in handcuffs could not keep still as he gazed at the floor. Nobody could have predicted what he was about to say. When asked his name, there was a brief moment of silence before he replied, The crossbow cannibal. A gasp came from the public gallery. He was asked for his address, and Griffiths replied, Um, here, I guess. The indictment explained that Griffiths was charged with murdering Suzanne Blamire sometime between May 20th and May 25th, 
murdering Shelley Armitage between April 25th and May 25th, and murdering Susan Rushworth between June 22nd, 2009 and May 25th, 2010. Griffiths was told he would be facing a further court hearing that same day, as the case was being fast-tracked to Bradford Crown Court. Four hours later, aware the defendant might try and solidify his self-appointed moniker, Stephen Griffiths was instead asked to confirm his name, rather than being afforded the opportunity to make up his own. Surrounded by guards of the court and bulletproof glass, Griffiths was told by Judge James Goss QC that he would face further legal proceedings via video link from prison. Following this second hearing, Griffiths was marched to a prison van where a crowd jeered. One person called, Here comes the dirty rat, fucking maniac. Another shouted, Fucking murdering bastard, die. A frenzy of photographers surrounded the security van Griffiths was being transported in. The camera lenses pressed up against the tinted glass windows. Griffiths was taken to Wakefield Prison, where he would be held on remand until the next hearing. A considerable amount of information about how Stephen Griffiths came to the attention of the authorities was not presented during his first Crown Court appearance. This is not unusual when legal proceedings commence. He had neither been identified through forensic analysis, nor had he been caught red-handed during the commission of a crime. While he had a criminal record that included threats to women, Griffiths was not on the police's radar for any of the killings. He had never been arrested for crimes against sex workers and was not on the sex offenders register. Instead, it almost appeared as though he wanted to be caught, considering how careless he was. On the morning of Monday, May 24, 2010, the caretaker in the flats where Stephen Griffiths lived started his shift, much like he had done many times before. As he leaned back in his office chair, Peter G. started to view the security footage from CCTV cameras positioned throughout the building, recorded over the weekend. Usually he would witness some petty crime or vandalism. Nothing serious. Recorded in the early hours of Saturday, May 22nd, the caretaker saw a resident he recognised as Stephen Griffiths in the company of a woman. She would later be identified as Suzanne Blamires. They both went into a flat on the third floor. A few minutes later, Suzanne reappears, frantic. She runs through the corridor. In pursuit, Griffiths catches up with her and beats her to the ground. Her limp body is dragged towards the flat. 
while Suzanne is unconscious or severely injured and unable to move. Griffiths retrieves a crossbow and pulls the trigger twice. He reaches up with both of his arms in the air and the crossbow in his hands. Griffiths appears to be claiming victory. Suzanne's body is dragged out of view. Griffiths returns to the camera with his crossbow and then holds up his middle finger. Clearly aware the camera is there, he returns for a second time. But he is not armed. With a bottle in one of his hands, Griffiths raises it to the camera to toast his brutal actions. The shocked and terrified caretaker continued to watch the footage captured over the course of that weekend. He witnesses Griffiths removing several full black bin bags and a rucksack from the building. Pictured with his shirt sleeves rolled up, Griffiths looks exhausted. In a state of disbelief after watching an execution and disposal of someone's remains, the caretaker immediately contacts the West Yorkshire Police. Stephen Sean Griffiths was born a day before Christmas 1969. Initially raised in the historic mill town of Dewsbury in Kirklees, West Yorkshire, Griffiths had two younger siblings. His mother Moira worked as a telephonist. His father, also called Stephen, worked in a number of jobs. A representative for a frozen food company, a salesman, and as an entertainment manager. Griffiths' parents divorced when he was young. With his brother Philip and sister Caroline, he moved to a council estate in Wakefield to live with his mother. A neighbour to the Griffiths family who did not wish to be named said Griffiths was, quote, very bright and a real nerd. The resident told a reporter for the Times newspaper the Griffiths children never mixed with other youngsters on the estate where they lived. They were a real family of oddballs, she said. Griffiths's uncle, Joe Dewhurst, would later speak with The Telegraph and described his nephew as quiet and withdrawn, even more so after his parents' divorce. Griffiths was someone who was hard to make out. He wasn't the kind of lad you could talk to about football or things like that, Joe Dewhurst said. He was very much a loner. A correspondent for BBC News also interviewed neighbours who recalled that when Griffiths was younger, he was often out at night. If he did go out during the day, he was armed. We used to see him with an air gun, shooting birds. Then we used to see him dissecting birds, the neighbour said. It looked as if he was enjoying what he was doing. He wasn't dissecting them bit by bit. He was ripping them apart. 
animal abuse was something that continued throughout Griffiths' life. Publicly available accounts also indicate that he took enjoyment out of throwing animals into the canal that runs through Bradford. In his teenage years, Stephen Griffiths was privately educated. He spent three years at Queen Elizabeth Grammar School in Wakefield. Coincidentally, John Haig, otherwise known as the Acid Bath Murderer, was a pupil at the same school. Haig was hanged for his crimes in 1949, and no doubt tales of his awful deeds filled the playground. Griffiths finished his studies a few months before he turned 17. A short time later, he was arrested for shoplifting in Leeds. As he was being detained, Griffiths assaulted a supermarket manager by slashing their face with a knife. The man needed over a dozen stitches. For the crime, Griffiths spent several years in youth custody. Even at such a young age, he described how he saw himself, admitting to a probation officer that he would likely grow up to be a murderer, as he often fantasised about killing. One note on Griffiths' medical file read that he had a, quote, preoccupation with murder, particularly multiple murder. The knife attack was the first in a series of crimes that would see him brought before the courts. In his early 20s, Griffiths was prosecuted for owning an air rifle. He was banned from possessing air weapons as part of his previous conviction. He was sentenced to 100 hours of community service. Griffiths was then charged and convicted of possessing an offensive weapon and a fray. No one could work out why he put a knife to the throat of a young girl as he threatened her life, nor did he ever explain it. He was again behind bars. After his release, he was once more on probation for possessing a knife in a public place before receiving a suspended prison sentence for again owning several air pistols. The last time he spoke with the probation service was in 2004. Griffiths' mental health had been on the decline throughout much of his adult life. During the early 90s, he received treatment in Rampton Hospital. He was interviewed by a psychiatrist who noted that Griffiths was highly intelligent. However, notes on his file referred to him as sadistic, schizoid and psychopathic. From what experts could gather, Griffiths did have a personality disorder, although it could not be treated and was not severe enough to see him sectioned. He was offered outpatient treatment for his mental health issues, although he did not receive any visits from the local mental health trust. No contact was made with any psychiatrists in the years leading up to his arrest, so most, if not all, of the information surrounding his mental health was gathered throughout his teens, twenties and early thirties. To make matters worse, 
Griffiths' consumption of drugs and alcohol increased during his mid to late 30s as he continued his studies. Later in life, people unfamiliar with his background viewed him as an egocentric academic interested in the macabre. Little did they know of the time he had spent in prison for violent attacks, possessing weapons and numerous run-ins with the law, not to mention the threats he had made against his former partners. Griffiths had a history of harassing ex-lovers, and half a dozen complaints were made to the police, but he never faced any jail time for these crimes. In most of his relationships, he sought to dominate his girlfriends in any way he could, but each relationship broke down, as they all did, and the threats began as Griffiths felt he was losing control. He was not afraid to breach restraining orders, and on one occasion left a series of voicemail messages in which he could be heard chastising and ridiculing an ex-partner. Former girlfriend Kathy Hancock spoke with the News of the World and said that Griffiths controlled every aspect of her life. In spite of a court order banning contact, he continued to threaten her. She kept a recording of one of his messages. Yeah, I'm trying to help you. I'm not going to go away, so I guess you'd better. <laughs> Regarding Stephen Griffiths' relationship with his family, in his late teens following his first conviction, he told them he wanted nothing more to do with them. In 2010, his father described to a reporter how he had not seen his son in a considerable amount of time. Stephen Griffiths Sr. said, He left home more than 22 years ago before he was 18. I haven't spoken to him in 10 years. All our sympathies are with the victims and their families. Griffiths's aunt also spoke about her nephew after she heard of his arrest. I cannot stand to be associated with him, Joan Griffiths told the Telegraph. I do not want anything to do with that side of the family. It is disgusting. Although Stephen Griffiths was growing more and more isolated in the period leading up to his arrest for multiple murder, what friends he did have saw him as charming and incredibly quick-witted. He knew how to command someone's attention even when speaking about the most morbid of topics. A subject that came up frequently was serial killers, along with any local murders or disappearances that made the news. Griffiths took little interest in some serial killers that had recently come to prominence, and according to friends, he actively despised Peter Sutcliffe, either due to the killer's infamy or what Griffiths saw as Sutcliffe's careless actions when getting caught. Around the Christmas period in 2009, Griffiths had invited over a fellow mature student. They too had a first-class honours degree in psychology 
focusing on offender profiling. The friends had known each other for almost a decade. While the two were chatting, Griffiths' friend saw a copy of the Telegraph and Argus newspaper. Within its pages, it mentioned the disappearance of Susan Rushworth. In the article, both the authorities and Susan's family were appealing to the public for any information that might lead to her whereabouts. The friends started talking about what could have happened. It appeared as though Susan had just dropped off the face of the earth without a trace. How could that be? Griffiths' friend asked. Without missing a beat with a smile on his face, Griffiths spoke of how easy it would be to destroy a body. He suggested acid, fire or dismemberment. It was a strange comment to make, although it was not unusual given the type of subjects he often spoke about. Griffiths watched videos of beheadings and voiced his curiosity as to the taste of human flesh. But it was only a short time later when Griffiths received a visit from his friend at the flat. They smelt an unpleasant odour. Griffiths chalked this up to the power being cut temporarily, which had affected some meat in his freezer. Also, at one point, the mature student had discussed making trips to a local canal near his home for research purposes. Griffiths said a centuries-old killer had disposed of his victim's remains there. It just so happened to be by an area of water which connected to the river where Suzanne Blamire's remains were found. Finally, Griffiths admitted to his friends that he had been stealing travel bags, an odd admission to make. But it was only on reflection with all the facts that this was likely done so the bags could not be traced back to him. In an interview with the Times newspaper almost a year to the day from the conversation with Griffiths about Susan Rushworth, his friend who wished to remain anonymous said, I felt really uncomfortable. I spoke to a mutual friend and said that I was wondering whether I should phone the police. But in the end, I didn't. It was just impossible to think that I was spending time in the company of someone who was really capable of doing that. Following Stephen Griffiths' arrest, police continued in their search throughout alleyways, derelict buildings and drainage systems near his flat. Trees were felled to allow for a digger to be transported close to the building so a forensic team could break ground and excavate a large amount of earth. Around the Homefield Court building and its surroundings in the red light area of Bradford, flowers and tributes were left for the victims. Bouquets were also tied to the railings next to the River Air, several miles away. One notable card read, For our special daughter Shelley. Good night. God bless. Mum and Dad. 
although there were plenty of theories as to the possibility that Griffiths could be responsible for further killings. The West Yorkshire Constabulary voiced the opinion that, at the time, they did not believe there were links to any other murders. And yet another coincidence that brought past trauma firmly back into the present. Stephen Griffiths had chosen solicitors Lum and McGill to represent him. The firm had acted on behalf of Peter Sutcliffe when he was charged for his crimes. This was not the first time the spectre of the Yorkshire Ripper was mentioned, as a new serial killer haunted the streets, and it would not be the last. With the case making front-page news across the country, the conversation around sex work legislation was again brought to the fore. Numerous reporters and politicians spoke about the possibility of legalisation. Excluding Northern Ireland, selling sex is not illegal in the UK. However, soliciting sex on the streets and running a brothel is. In the past, several attempts had been made by government bodies and local authorities to deal with on-street sex work. This often involved moving the people who conduct it to managed areas, and discussions had taken place that would see brothels licensed and off-street sex work regulated. Although over the years, those plans never became a reality. The public wanted to hear the thoughts of then-Prime Minister David Cameron. Cameron made it clear he did not want to legalise soliciting sex on the streets or brothels, but focus instead on the reason why people are choosing that profession and combat the causes, which the papers were quick to link to drug use and social issues. The plan in 2010 was to help all local agencies work together to tackle the problem. A government spokesperson described the benefits of multiple agency collaboration as they were, quote, working towards a clear aim of eradicating prostitution by supporting those involved in prostitution while tackling those that contribute to the demand for prostitution. Four days after the remains of Suzanne Blaymeyers were discovered, an underwater search team scouring an area of the river around 200 yards away found an additional set of skeletal remains inside two small polythene bags. They were discovered midday on Saturday, May 29th. Although due to their condition it could not be confirmed if the remains were human or animal, and if they were human if they belonged to Suzanne Blaymeyers. The police believe they had retrieved most of Suzanne's remains. However, considering this new discovery, testing would need to be completed. Only when detailed analysis was undertaken would they know, and that would likely take a few days at the very least. During that same search, a black canvas hold-all on wheels 
was also recovered from the riverbed. The contents were not disturbed when the bag was briefly opened, although inside there appeared to be tools. A careful examination of these items would also need to be carried out. Frustratingly, as the bag was underwater, any forensic material that may have inadvertently been left on the surface of the objects could very well be washed away. Experts wanted to ensure that any biological evidence or fingerprints were not disturbed, so they were going to wait for the bag and its contents to dry out naturally. The tools inside the bag were later confirmed to be razor blades, a hacksaw, knives, and more human remains. It was labelled a killer's kit bag in the press. The West Yorkshire Constabulary were keen to speak with Stephen Griffiths' relatives to learn more about the life of their suspect. Although when they went to visit his mother at her home, she was not there, and she was not answering her phone which appeared to have been switched off. She was reportedly on holiday when the news broke of her son's arrest. When she was finally tracked down, Moira Griffiths spoke with a reporter about how, much like the rest of Stephen Griffiths' family, she had lost touch with her son and not seen him in a considerable amount of time. She discussed the arrest and the crimes Griffiths was accused of. The conversation was printed in the Sun newspaper. It makes me feel horrible just thinking about it, Moira said. It's the kind of thing you never think will happen to you. And then it does. I'm still in shock. It would take experts two days to confirm who the second set of remains found in the River Air belonged to. It was established the bones discarded in two polythene bags were not human, but in fact came from an animal. The exact nature of the remains appeared to relate to food preparation, likely offcuts from a meat processing factory. This now posed a problem, as police believed Susan Rushworth and Shelley Armitage had been murdered. Where were their bodies? This is the end of episode 48. To hear the final instalment on the case of the Bradford murders and the crossbow cannibal, please tune in in three days' time.
This year, They Walk Among Us will appear at CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event. Rescheduled from its previous dates in June, CrimeCon is coming to London on Saturday the 25th and Sunday the 26th of September. You can learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, delve deeper into unsolved crimes and meet your favourite true crime podcasters. Tickets are on sale now at crimecon.co.uk and make sure to use the promo code TWAU at checkout to receive not only a special 10% discount, but you can pick up either an exclusive t-shirt or tote bag which you can collect directly from us during the convention. For more information, visit crimecon.co.uk and don't forget to use the promo code TWAU for 10% off. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Abby Whelan, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.